Hi, Davida. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Alicia. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So this is the highlight um, probably of my month, maybe the whole damn <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm super excited to have you on because I've been following your work, but I've only been following it online. So I've, I can only have, you know, one level of understanding, I think, of what it is you do. And I, I know that it goes much deeper than um, what one can see from from Twitter, from videos and from, you know, articles and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's get to it. Can you can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Sure. Um, so that is a layered question. Um, and the reason why I say that <laughs> is because I identify as a first-generation Detroiter. So it's very um, simple in terms of where I was born. I was born in the city of Detroit, and I identify as a first-generation Detroiter. But it gets complicated after that. Not really complicated. It's just because it gets layered. Um, and the reason why it's layered is because I'm a first-generation Detroiter. And what that means is, is that I am the first person in my family that was born in the city of Detroit. Both my mother and father um, are Southerners. They are from the rural South. They are from Alabama. Um, so were my grandparents, my great-grandparents, um, and, and their parents. So not only am I a first-generation uh, Detroiter, but I'm also a descendant of the enslaved, and I also identify as a daughter of the Great Migration. My mother and father uh, migrated, fleeing the Jim Crow South um, and um, racial terror um, in Alabama in 1963. Uh, they fled Alabama, and they moved to Detroit. Uh, Michigan, uh, looking, of course, for a better way of life, um, opportunities, much like 7 million other African-Americans who made the migration from the South to the North, um, opportunities for their unborn children. Um, I was the firstborn. I also have um, a younger brother as well. And so it was really important for me to kind of lay down that context. Um, it's so important because it influences your next question, which is what did I grow up eating? And so even though my parents left Alabama, the place, and made good lives in Detroit, Abbott, um, the uh, segregation and, and, and redlining and violence they received when they came to the North, they did make a way for themselves to provide opportunities that were better for themselves and better for their children. And so even though they did leave Alabama, the place, they never left Alabama the idea, not altogether. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I didn't spend my summers um, at camps. Um, I spent my summers as a girl growing up at my grandparents' house going back down to Alabama. As a matter of fact, when my father used to drive myself and my brother um, every year when school would let out around Memorial Day, the end of May, early June, and then him and my mother would come and pick my brother and I back up in September. My mother and father would always say, it's time to go home, right? Every summer. And so we knew what going home meant. Going home meant it was, it was going time to go to our grandparents' house in Alabama every summer. And so that kind of reconnecting with culture 
really influenced what I ate. So growing up as a child in the summer, I can distinctly remember trips that my mother and father took, driving me and my brother to Alabama and what we ate. Uh, we ate shoebox lunches, right? And in those shoebox lunches were things like fried chicken, potato salad, um, um, coleslaw, um, and of course, something that was a Southern dessert that my mother would make. And it would vary, coconut cake, pound cake, sweet potato pie, pecan pie, right? I remember those lunches over those 10 top rest stops. Um, as a child growing up in the city of Detroit, when my father and mother migrated, they also brought their agricultural skills and their love of being able to cultivate the land. So my mother always had like a small garden in our backyard. And what that meant is I ate fresh greens, you name it, college turnips, mustards, mixed greens, black eyed peas, mommy grew, uh, corn, tomatoes, cucumbers, onions, um, um, homemade ice cream, uh, watermelon, honeydew. Uh, so uh, we didn't call it farm to table when I was growing up as a child, Alicia. We called it eating. And uh, that just has, has, has always has been with me and has influenced the way that I still eat today. Right. Yeah. How did you become involved in the food world in a, in a professional way? Yeah. So I became involved in the food world in a professional way through my work with Hearst magazines. Um, I worked in a department um, that was called branding um, and licensing. And Hearst is a magazine publisher um, with titles like House Beautiful, uh, Veranda, 17, Cosmo, Country Living, Oprah, um, Esquire, etc. And you think it to yourself, like, how in the world are you going to make the connections? What is the connective tissue between a magazine and the food world? Well, and I'm dating myself, so I'm uh, 51 <laughs> years old. And uh, if folks can um, imagine this, like back in the day when I worked in publishing and when I worked from Hearst, there was no kind of social media presence, right? Magazines weren't online. Like there, we were still buying and subscribing uh, to magazines. And the earned revenue strategy for Hearst was the earned revenue strategy of many publications or publishers of magazines, right? It was either through a subscription base or through advertising in the magazine. Well, Hearst had added an additional revenue stream. And that additional revenue stream is where I come in. They started a department that was called branding and licensing. And that is they would take their 100-year-old magazine titles and they would attach the name of their magazine or the title of their magazine onto a consumer product good. So, And I had the, what was called the shelter category. And so give you an example of some kind of consumer products that, you know, I created with large manufacturers would be something like country living, pie in a jar, good housekeeping, salad dressing, Esquire barbecue sauce. I can't even believe I'm telling you this because, <laughs> but, you know, I got to tell you. So, yes, um, my job was to um, uh, create licensing deals um, using and leveraging um, Hearst Magazine's title and working with the editors and the writers. They would write what was called advertorials, right, um, using the products that we created with these large um, manufacturers. And um, it was a model until it wasn't. And, it, and when I say until it wasn't, um, there was a time in which, you know, again, the Internet um, and digital became very prolific where 
magazines started to move all their content online. They started to think about what digital strategies would look like. Um, advertising on the internet became big. And so Hearst made a decision that after about five or six years of working in branding and licensing, Hearst shut the department down and decided to start moving all their content um, online. And um, I took a buyout um, when Hearst decided to do that and shut down our entire department. And with the money that I got from the buyout, I opened up a small store in Brooklyn. And the reason why I opened up this small store in Brooklyn, not only was an homage to um, my family, it was called the Southern Pantry, but it was also because there were so many of my friends, Alicia, who lived in Brooklyn. Um, I lived in Queens at the time, but there were so many of my friends who lived in Brooklyn who, um, to be honest, I were laid off from either like Wall Street or, or finance, or um, they either worked um, in theater. Like they were super creative people. And one of the things that they started to do was they actually started to make like this made in Brooklyn, locally sourced like product, right? And so it was like, I mean, it was so ridiculous. Like I'm talking late 1990s, early 2000, where folks were like raising chickens on top of freaking rooftops. Chickens were laying eggs and they were making like limited edition, handmade, crafted, artisanal mayonnaise. I'm talking like, you know, growing Meyer lemons. It was like this whole made in Brooklyn phenomenon that um, was taking place. And so I wasn't making anything, but I opened up a store in that small, hyper local kind of store. It actually sold the products that my friends created. So that's how we all started. And then when did you go back to Detroit? Yeah. And so um, I lived in New York for almost 20 years. Um, I, I worked um, for only two companies uh, while I lived in New York. Um, I worked for Ralph Lauren for about uh, nine years, worked for Hearst for about five, uh, six years. And then I had my own business for about three or four years. And so I lived all over New York City. I stayed in Manhattan. I stayed in Brooklyn, stayed in Queens. Um, but then I got married and I bought a home in Long Island, small little cute maritime community in Nassau County um, that was called Freeport. As a matter of fact, it was South Freeport because it was south of the Sunrise Highway. Um, and then a superstorm came and that storm was Hurricane Sandy. Um, and it took me out. And what I mean by that, um, the storm um, hit my community uh, really, really hard, and it destroyed um, my home. Nine feet of water came through that house and destroyed it. Um, as a result, not only was I rendered homeless because uh, I had no house um, anymore, but not my store that was located in Brooklyn, but the warehouse that I stored all of my product in was in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and that warehouse was destroyed as well, along with all the products inside of it, right? So it wasn't like I could call a mainline distributor and be like, oh, I need more ketchup, I need more eggs, I need more, ma like everything was gone. And so, um, yeah, I went back to Detroit um, as a result of that hurricane and permanently moved back to Detroit in 2013, and I have been here now for about seven years. Wow. I had no idea you lived on Long Island. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, you're, a, you're a Long Islander. Yeah, I'm from Paratia. Oh, yeah, you, I'm from out, out in Suffolk County. Yeah, yeah I was born yeah, in Huntington so, yeah. and, and grew up in Patchogue. 
So you, so yeah. you can understand um, my short answer. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I lived in Long Island. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm yes, just gonna say that, and then we're just gonna, like, you understand, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Um, no, but um, no, Hurricane Sandy. I don't think we we hear often enough about how how powerful and life changing that storm was for so many people. I think because it didn't hit you know, Manhattan was largely spared. And so at that time I was working at New York Magazine and I remember the way people were regarding it coming in and the way people regarded it after it happened was so nonchalant. And it it really brought a lot of class differences uh, to the fore for me in terms of how, yeah, in terms of how the media was perceiving people who lived in communities that were so hard hit but it was it it seemed like oh because Manhattan was fine it's not it's not actually a big deal it was a very it was just very strange I I remember not having power for you know I I got through it fine but not having power for four days and waiting on long gas lines like that was it for me because I was living on the north shore at the time which wasn't as hard hit but it was it was uh, catastrophic absolutely yeah, it, it, it definitely was. So, yeah, yeah but, you know, um, I've, I've got to tell you, um, my life and the way that it is now um, never would have happened, Alicia, if I'm quite honest, if I had not moved back to Detroit as a result of Hurricane Sandy. You know, listen, I am, again, uh, born and raised in the city of Detroit. And Detroit was going through what many people classify as a renaissance, right? There was a lot of investment that was happening in the city. Um, Things were happening um, in downtown or the 7.2 square miles, the greater downtown area. Um, And so many people, my mother and father included, would say, Davida, there are so many great things happening um, in Detroit. All eyes are on the city of Detroit right now. When are you going to come back home um, and contribute and be a part of this this kind of like new renaissance or dare I use the word revitalization that's happening in the city of Detroit? And Alicia, if I'm super honest with you, like I never thought about when I was coming back home to the city of Detroit. Maybe like, yeah, sure. Like, I don't know. Like I never really thought about it. But when folks would ask me that, My question was not an answer to when I was coming back to Detroit. My question was always, why would I ever leave New York City? Like, why? It's the place that I always wanted to live my entire life. Um, You know, I lived there for almost 20 years. I met my husband there, got married there, got divorced there. I mean, I mean, good times and bad times. Um, But hey, it's, it's New York City. I mean, and... You know, say what you want to say, but I guess if I could take a line from, you know, Carrie Bradshaw from Sex in the City, nobody talks shit about my boyfriend, right? And it was just kind of like, yeah, you know, it was some good days and some bad days. But at the end of it all, it's the place um, where I always wanted to live. And to be super honest, I have a little niece. Um, her name is Alia. She's four years old. And um, yeah, I want her to live in New York, too. It's just, I don't know. So. <laughs> And it's it's fascinating that you went back to Detroit during this time, even a bit 
reluctantly perhaps, but when I interviewed Chef Omar Tate, I asked him if he had seen places that were reckoning with the inequities built into the restaurant system. And he said, you know, a million places in Detroit. And he named Food Lab, you know, as chief among them. Mm. Why? <laughs> but it, it made so much sense to me when he said that. He's like, you know, Detroit, of course. And so why do you think Detroit has been such a fertile ground for food justice? Yeah, that was nice of him to say. Um, <laughs> and so, oh gosh, you know, it, you know, when I think about the word um, food justice, mm-hmm. one of the things that the elders in Detroit tell those of us who are kind of like in this movement, there can't be food justice without social justice. And how important we have to think about our work kind of intersectionally. And so, you know, why Detroit, right? Why is Detroit such fertile ground? And to be honest, Alicia, I think because, yes, it is because Detroit is a place that when six million African-Americans migrated from the south to the north, Detroit was the place um, that many Black folks, along with Chicago or along with uh, Indiana or or Cleveland or other places in the north where Black folks landed, you know, Harlem, Philly, you know, we, you, you name it, right? Um, and, and, and Omar is, is, is from Philly. And so I can't just say it is because Detroit had a large population of Black folks from the rural south, right? I mean, right. that's yes and right i think that there are other things that make detroit super unique right where the food justice movement was able to leverage and build upon and i think one of the things that for me i always hearken back to in detroit's history is how there is this history in detroit that is really rooted in labor activism right And the reason why I say that is because Detroit is literally the city that put the world on wheels. We are known as the Motor City. And so it was labor activism and our long history of organizing around labor. I think that when you look at Victor and Roy and Walter, these are the three brothers. Um, They are the three Ruther brothers, Walter Ruther, Roy Ruther, Victor Ruther, right? These are the men and organizers of the UAW. And they organized around harsh working conditions in the auto industry. And it's the Ruthers who championed kind of like this industrial democracy. And they created the UAW, right? Back in 1935. And then through through that organizing work, like people began to see Detroit as a fertile ground for activism. And what happened? Union leaders end up joining Martin Luther King Jr., who brought the fight for civil rights for African-Americans. He brought it to the city of Detroit before Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech that I have a dream speech in Washington. He tried it out first in the city of Detroit. Right. And so there's this long history. The first strike against a fast food restaurant, Burger King happened at a Greyhound bus station that great that Burger King was located in. Where? in the city of Detroit, right? And so Detroit has this long history of organizing. And it, it is those same, that same kind of principle around activism 
that I think influences like movement building and organizing in the city of Detroit. But that's not even enough, Alicia. I think there's layers <laughs> on top of that too, right? I think yeah. also that that's so important about the city of Detroit that people may not really know um, when they think about the city of Detroit. So when you think about Detroit, again, I mentioned that you think of cars. Some people even think of like Motown, right? But they rarely think about art. And the truth of the matter is, is that the city's grit also has been a long fertile ground for artists. And so, you know, I can remember harking back to um, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dudley Randall, right? The founder of Broadside Press, right? He was a poet, but he was also a pioneer of being a publisher for Black artists. So it was Dudley Randall and his publishing company, Broadside Press, that brought the world the leading voices in the Black arts movement. Folks like Gwendolyn Brooks, Sonia Sanchez, Audra Lord, Ethra Knight, Nikki Giovanni. Like, so Detroit has, is, is like, you know, it, it gives me goosebumps. Like when I think about the history of my city and how we leverage our work and the reason why I bring up labor, the reason why I bring up art is that that all has influenced Alicia, how we think about food, right? And how we think about like food justice, food movement building in the city of Detroit, all of that is influenced by Detroit's history around labor um, and art and music and activism. No, I love that. I love that because I think what I've, I've been hoping to do with this newsletter is show how much all these things are connected, labor, um, labor, race, you know, farming, um, art, literature, all these things aren't as disparate as we've, we've been trained to think of them as. And, and, and I, I love that, that Detroit really brings it all together. Absolutely not. Listen, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm sure we, we we're going to get into this, but, you know, one of the things that is so important and why is, for me, so important, right? For us to know and understand um, our history is so that we can push back against like false narratives and why that's so important, right? And so, you know, when you, you know, when I hear people say, call Detroit, like, oh my God, like a food desert. Of course, we immediately correct them and say, no, um, Detroit is not a food desert. You know, the citizens of Detroit are living under food apartheid. Yes. A food desert. No, you know, that's, that, that is a negative framework. And more importantly, we have over 1600 farms and gardens in Detroit. So we know how to grow shit right in the city of Detroit. So let's be clear, like we're not a desert, but another thing about the city of Detroit, even when you talk about the citizens living under a food apartheid, it's just kind of like the things that were done to Detroit, like, let's be very clear, was like super intentional. Like right. these, our neighborhoods were like intentionally created in the city of Detroit. And the reason why I mentioned that is because when I talk about the history um, of the city of Detroit and why art, um, why design is so influential, is that Detroit had a neighborhood that was called Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood. And that's where um, a lot of African-Americans um, were kind of marginalized when folks made that migration from the South to the North. Um, and it wasn't only in Detroit, um, but Black folks were regulated um, to certain communities or certain neighborhoods. Because God forbid, you know, white folks have us living next to them. And so we were regulated to certain communities, certain neighborhoods. 
in the neighborhood in Detroit where a large majority of black folks live was called Black Bottom. But do you understand, like in the 1950s, as a result of a federal policy that was called urban renewal, like they destroyed that community to create a freeway. And when they destroyed that community to accommodate a freeway, they also built a residential development. And you know who it was designed by? An artist, an architect called Mies van der Rohe. So Detroit has this beautiful community now of all these beautiful Mies homes. And they were erected after Black communities were destroyed and after hundreds of African-Americans were displaced, right? And so this erasure of our history to make space and to make room, right, for artists that were not reflective of our community is very prevalent in the city of Detroit. Right. And when you talk, when you mentioned false narratives, it reminds me in your answer to the first question of how you didn't call it farm to table, you called it eating and how <laughs> how these things, <laughs> these concepts have been, you know, um you know, taken from the root and and sold back to people who may not have the same connection to the land that your family has. But what what do you think about that phrase, farm to table? Yeah, um, again, I think is I think it is um, a narrative um, that was created um, in a way to add this. this 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 marketable this palatable um sense of kind of value um to upcharge um to charge more right to the consumer mm-hmm. very easy yeah. easy way in terms of how folks use to describe their restaurant and basically through that description and through that kind of added value kind of narrative nuance they were able to charge more for a plate Right. Um, You know, and it's really interesting. I mean, I feel the same way from the table as I do nose to tail. It's like marketing jargon. That's exactly what it is. Right. Um, And in so many cases, you know, we 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 see that now, you know, it is we we see that. And and when I say we see that is that even now in this moment, like mass protests that are happening all over the world and, you know, the the value of, of black lives and, and racial inequality. We're talking about that now in, in, in a mainstream way, and kind of like in the public square, like there is this national or global conversation. Like you even see the co-opting, the co-opting of our language, Alicia, like that came from like movement building. We see this, right? You see the co-opting right. of like survival skills. My God, in Audre Lorde, a black queer woman that gave us like the language of self-care. Now what they have done is they've commodified self-care. And now it's about what? Going to get your nails done and like facial mask or whatever. And like, you know, uh, uh, cleaning right. skincare. Like, are you are you serious? And so they take our language, right? In mind, I mean, but that's nothing new. Like even youth culture. I mean, it was a black girl who created like on fleek, like and right. And they took that. And next thing you know, you're seeing it in like commercials. Like what? Excuse me. And so yeah, um, um, it is. It is. Um, it is taking um, language, and it was language we we did not have, but. It's not something that we that we called it, but it's this marketing of our, our lifestyle that they have been able to codify. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting phenomenon that keeps repeating itself um, in terms of the co-opting and the, and the, the shifting of narratives to serve, you know, 
specifically, you know, these capitalist purposes. Um, and so I wanted to ask, though, in your TED talk on urban agriculture, you talk about people knowing where their food comes from, community kitchens, cooperative models. Um, why do you think agriculture has such power to change how communities interact? And do you see the potential for these models to have as strong an impact in other cities and not just Detroit? Yeah, um, that's, that's, that, that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, 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 um, you know, I've been thinking about, um, you know, I've been thinking about the power of kind of agriculture and the power of food. And I think that, you know, Alicia, it has always been a powerful kind of movement building tool in our toolbox as African-Americans. And so it just, it, it, it makes sense. And what, what I mean by that is that, you know, ever since Detroit filed for the largest municipal bankruptcy in the United States of America, we've seen tons of articles about what went wrong with the city. You know, a lot of it was political finger pointing, but the common narrative is that Detroit was in decline. And it all began in the 1960s when Black folks started um, to run their cities when we elected our first Black mayor, right? But what annoys me about this language, not only is it false, but it also does not, again, go deep enough and explain that the creation of communities in the city of Detroit were intentional. And I think what is the power of, of food and what is the power of agriculture is that it had the power to like transform um, these communities. It had the power to kind of like reshape neighborhoods. And, 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 and it is important to understand how when Southerners from the South moved to the North, how they were met with Northern anti-Blackness that really did um, shape their neighborhoods using systemic violence, using segregation laws, using discriminatory practices. And when, when white folks started to flee Detroit, we call that phenomenon like white flight, um, and so did resources. So did investment began to leave the city of Detroit. Like it was like the imagination of those farmers. It was like the imagination of folks who knew how to grow food. It was through their imagination that was like, they didn't succumb to the fact that there was kind of like uh, vacant buildings or or blighted, uh, blighted property. Like I just think about the fact of what kind of imagination they must have had to imagine that they could actually use this vacancy to actually like grow food, right? And so I remember like one of our elders, her name is Grace Lee Boggs. Um, she died at 100 years old, but one of our elders and an activist in the city of Detroit, and she talked about, you know, 
a revolution that is based on the people exercising their creativity in the midst of devastation is the great historical contribution of mankind, right? And I think about those farmers, I think about those elders, I think about those people who actually put their hands in the dirt and where other people saw despair, like they saw opportunity. And so, and so, and so agriculture does that. And it did that for the city of Detroit. That's why I think it's so powerful. That's why I think it's so strong. And what I love even more, right, is that, again, the reason why I lifted up Detroit's history around art and design is because the farmers and the people who are part of this agri- urban agriculture movement in the city of Detroit, it, it's kind of like they had that, that artist, they had that designer mentality around imagination. Right. And the reason why I say that is that Detroit is a city where we practice imagination collaboration. And that means inviting someone to be a part of an idea or to create an idea with you. So the urban agriculture movement wasn't created in a vacuum. And the reason why I love that is that, you know, I'm the kind of person who thinks like really big picture. Right. I'm I'm like, oh, like I've got a vision. Like, let's do this. And and that's the work, you know, that I do at, at the nonprofit that I work for, like Food Lab Detroit. It's just kind of like, oh, like, how can we transform the food system? Like, I'm thinking really big picture. But in order to be a farmer, your imagination has to be systemic and structural. It has to be a process. You have to understand the soil. You have to understand what the plant. You have to understand the weather. And so I love working with farmers because they bring a, a different imagination skill set that I tip that I don't have. And when I think about imagination collaboration, I also think about what the farmers and folks involved in the agricultural movement were doing, right? There is a book by uh, Dr. Monica White that's called Freedom Farmers, my God. And so when you think about like snatching back the narrative, particularly in a place like Detroit, where you had so many people that left the South and moved to the North, snatching back this narrative around farming as freedom. So you begin to change the narrative. And instead of thinking as black farmers, as um, as the enslaved people who are working the land or picking cotton, instead of thinking black farmers as, as sharecroppers, right? Instead of thinking about tenant farmers, like now in the city of Detroit, when you see black farmers, we think about power. We think about sovereignty. We think about dignity. We think about harm reduction, right? That's the power of urban agriculture. And so you say to yourself, when we're planning and when people are thinking about turning side lots or think people are thinking about turning their backyards, people are thinking about turning their school gardens into like these agricultural places, not only to grow fruits and vegetables, but for conviviality, bringing people together. Like questions are asked, Alicia. Like how do we make sure that people who are most impacted by what's ever happening in this community, in this neighborhood, get to co-imagine this particular plot of land with us? Like how do we prevent those people from being excluded from the conversation because of someone else's power dynamic of an imagining? So here in Detroit, like we've gone through massive gentrification in certain communities, but it is in those places. It is in those gardens. It is in those fields when we start to think about, you know, who is not at this quote unquote imaginary table, like who should be a part of the conversation. And so, you know, you and I talked a little bit earlier about like this divergent of movements and how it was important to like think about 
of the work that we do or the work that I do from an intersectional lens. And a big part of the, 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 the work and the language and the practice that I borrow from has to be um, the disability justice movement. Because they are very clear that if you don't have people who use wheelchairs, if you don't have people who are blind, if you don't have people who are deaf at that imagination, imagination, imaginary table, when you're creating or building, I don't care what it is, you'll find out later that whatever you made is not actually accessible to those people because they run at the table, right? And so this is collaboration that happens in Detroit around agriculture that makes it so, that makes it so powerful. Um, and then you ask like, you know, can, what is happening what happened in the city of Detroit, what will happen, what we're continuing to build in the city of Detroit, can it happen other places? <sighs> you know, Alicia, that's so touchy for me because to be honest, when I think about, you know, it happening in other places, I immediately think of the word scale and I hate using the word scale because I'm so place-based. It's so important um, that we do place-based work. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. You know, I definitely think I I, I definitely think that, you know, people have got to find a place. Uh, People have got to find a space um, within food justice movement where they're creating spaces where love gets fermented. I mean, that's and I don't know how that looks. I don't know. I don't know how that shows up in your community. Right. I don't know if that shows up in a big um, shared use kitchen space. I don't know if that shows up in a farm. I don't know if that shows up in a cooperatively owned restaurant. I don't know where that happens. But wherever there is love, I mean, wherever there is food happening, wherever there is growing happening, produce happening, there it needs to be fermented in love. Because I think we should be working to love each other and to create spaces where people feel love and sustain. And guess what? Unfortunately, food movement work is often driven by fear and scarcity, not love. Mm-hmm. Right. People are coming together in food movement because they're terrified of something. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. We're terrified of food insecurity, right? We're terrified um, of, of the fact that we won't have enough money to actually be able to go to the grocery store to put food on our uh, food on our table. We're terrified that all the grocery stores are going to leave our neighborhoods and we won't have um, some place to go to buy food. Like we're terrified right, of mm-hmm. something that's yeah. coming. And as a result of that, there's this deep, urgent scarcity. But I think that, well, I know that when you operate like that, that can burn you out. And so I know in movement building work and when we talk about, you know, scale, when we talk about expanding what is happening in Detroit to other places, right? We always talk about scale happens, movement building happens at the speed of trust. I like to think that movement happens at the speed of love, right? And so I don't know if it can it, it can happen um, in other places, um, but I do know that people come from all over the world um, to to come to the city of Detroit and to look and to learn. But you know what they always say when they sit down at the table with me or some of my comrades or colleagues or people when we take them to DBCFSN or D-Town Farms or Oakland Avenue Farms or Keep Growing Detroit's Farm, they're like, I feel so much love in this space. That's where the transformation happens. It happens through the stomach, but it also happens through the heart. 
And that's what we want you. Yeah, we want you to see everything that's grown here. Sure. Of course, we want you to feel it. We want you to see it, right? Absolutely. Our mission is food sovereignty. We want to make sure every produce, fruit, and vegetable that's grown in Detroit stays in Detroit. Absolutely. But you can't do that without love, Alicia. And so we want them to feel it um, as well as see it. Right. So I don't know. That was a long way of answering your question. Like, no, I, I, um, I think so. <laughs> no, but I think that's so important. And I think it's missing a lot of the time when we talk about food systems and we talk it, that word scale does come up so much and, and growth, et cetera, et cetera. And like, we have to make sure everyone has food, but we're not talking about what that food is and, you know, how it connects to them culturally, locally, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's that big green revolution thing of you know getting everyone enough rice but i don't it's like um yeah but, i mean you know the idea like, can't you tell a difference between like for me like can't you tell the difference between if you're eating like string beans that were actually grown by someone and someone's hands phys- physically snap those beans for you versus some shit that you get out of a jar like it tastes like pain like I'm sorry, but it just does. Like, I, like can like who the hell eats like I, you know what? I don't want to sound elitist or anything like that, but like, can vegetables like taste like trauma? Like I'm sorry. It no, it's, it, it's it's no true, but it, it, what you do like you can take those string beans out the can and y'all can make y'all casserole and, and put all it. I don't even know what you put on it, but it's crazy. The, the, the casserole with the, I don't even know what the crunchy stuff on top. And I don't, it's crazy to me, but I like, I, yeah, no, I'm not eating that. I'm just not, elite. I'm not, I'm yeah, not that, eating that. The, the green bean casserole comes completely from a can. I believe I know the, it every I ingredient. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um no and and it, it is it's really interesting and it's so important that everyone remind themselves that things need to be so place based and and uh, and so much would be lost if they if it wasn't if, if these movements and these ideas um that people are forming um but for you and I think you answered this question with with the can comment but it is for you is cooking a political act Oh gosh yeah I mean Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it courses through my veins. I mean, I couldn't even think about it um, in any other way um, about how revolutionary, um, how political um, food is, especially when you come from um, a Southern family like mine's who was obsessively preoccupied with food. Um, Even based upon the fact that they had very little, right? Here again, I'm going to tie back in that in terms of like that, that imagination, that artistry mindset. Like they had very little, but the creativity that they exhibited when they created every meal, like that was a revolutionary act, right? Um, I, think it's, I think it's political for me is that, you know, when you have dishes that are crafted using fresh produce from the garden, the meat that came from, um, oh, and I know you, I know you, I know you are practicing a vegetarian, um, um, Alicia, right. but, uh, you know, the, the, the meat though, that, you know, we raised, um, uh, that came from, um, you know, the, 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 the um, the slaughterhouse, um, fresh eggs uh, from the hen house. I mean, it came from revolutionaries who grew their own, they grew their own food, um, that, that, that grew their own fruits and, and, and vegetables and, 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 and ate whole, whole food and, and emphasized 
you know, again, we didn't have the language. I didn't, we didn't have the language, but they emphasize what we now call as, as food sovereignty, right? And, and, and I think yeah. through, through that and growing up with that, two things happen. Number one, it's in the gardens and in the kitchens and in the markets uh, where my ancestors have revisited me, right? They have revisited right. me. And, 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 and when I say that is that I feel them in my stomach. I feel them whispering to me knowledge, right, about food systems. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this knowledge is in my hairs and my blood is in my hands. It reminds me um, that there's so much left for us to do. Right. Um, it reminds me of their resistance. Um, it reminds me how they use food as liberation. But you know what else it reminds me of is that, you know, when I think about my ancestors and I think about my grandmother, thank God my mother is still living, who reminds me of her grandmother, which is my great grandmother, reminds me every day. Um, and when I'm sitting around um, the table with family, um, enjoying a meal um, that I know that um, somebody in my family or somebody that I knew grew it. You know, it also reminds me of joy. God, and that right there mm-hmm. is revolutionary. And the reason why is is revolutionary and it feels like it's important. And I think it's politically important for me as an African-American woman is because I think it's politically important to be a black woman, having a good time and being free and letting people see this, right? And I tell people all the time, I'm like, they tried to kill us. They tried to steal our joy, but they didn't succeed. And look at me, right? Look how happy I am. Look at me on the farm, right? Changing that narrative, right? Look at me on the farm with other black folks, with other folks. They they tried to, they tried to define our work. As a matter of fact, they don't even want to give us credit for being the backbones of the agricultural systems that we now have in the United States. We created this, right? black and brown people. Right. But I don't want them to always steep our story in tenant farming or in slavery. I want them to see me in the field happy. I'm happy. And and, and, and here's the thing. Here's, here's the trick to it. I'm happy, yet I'm still connected to great suffering at the same time. But despite everything, despite the work, despite all the shit that's going on, despite all of the history that's wrapped up in the land around black people, I still find joy. And, and, and I think that that is important because I want black women specifically to tell them every day it is OK to experience some joy each and every day. And I believe it's a measure of freedom to be able to experience the joy that's available to me and available to others at this moment. So absolutely is a political act. And, you know, I can get in, in into history and, and explain why I think that, you know, food, of course, is political. I can talk to you about the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, right, is a part of a rich tradition, again, of labor organizing. And again, that happened from farmers in the South at the height of the 1930s, right? Of course, political. So I can tell you about CTFU and the rallies and the meetings that were heavily influenced by the Baptist church. Why? Because my father's a preacher, my grandfather's a preacher, my great-grandfather's a preacher. So I know the role of farming and the Black tradition of, of spirituality and how that is all wrapped up into political movement building, right? I could talk to you about the Black Panthers and their understanding that hunger deserves immediate attention. And they also understood that radical transformation happens through if you can't lead your people, if you can't feed your people, you can't lead your people. And they knew political education was vital to understanding the reasons behind hunger. 
mind and they envision a world where all children are, are, are fed. Hence the Black Panther Breakfast Program, long before the United States of America, long before the government had the free breakfast program at schools, it was the Black Panther Party who did it first, right? Where they talked about food at the intersection of healthcare, at the intersection of education, at the intersection of land, at the intersection of housing, at the intersection of the right and the privilege, right? For 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 for, for water. And so and so all of that, like that history around movement building, food movement building, food activism, I guess it's 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 a part of, of, of my DNA. And absolutely I cannot uh, sit up here and, and deny any of that. So for me, food has always been political because it's a part of my history. It's a part of who I am. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Davida. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Alicia. It was great talking with you. Thank you.